You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Tonight brings us to our next to last, uh, Lord willing, by the plan, we have of our study of Hebrews. We're in the 13th chapter. We've concluded the uh, lines of argument that were developed through the book of Hebrews. There's the outline, uh, which we'd shared and have used from the beginning of the greatness of Christ, his superiority in all respects to anything we might compare him to, uh, his superiority of effects, his superiority of position, his superiority of help and service of ministry to us. And we had exhortations along the way of warning us about neglect and not believing God's word, not being immature, certainly not falling away. And even after that harsh uh, exhortation and rebuke, the writer says, but we're convinced of better things concerning you. And then talked about the confidence we can have in God's word. We were again exhorted to fidelity and faith in chapter 10. And then again, a sober warning, the terrifying expectation uh, that remains for those who don't choose to live a faithful life in Christ. We had the closing exhortations and the big conclusion, I think, of the book in chapter 12 of not neglecting his discipline, of making sure we don't come up short of his grace, but instead receiving the great kingdom that he's given, which cannot be shaken, and serve him with reverence and with awe. And so we had that outline that we've used each time. And again, we have those available. If you like down here at the building or send me a note, and I'll, I'll make sure you get one. Tonight in the 13th chapter, and this is not to dismiss the importance of these exhortations or the topics that are brought up, but I think that we have in chapters 1 through 12 the complete text of a sermon. We have, as it, we'll call it in chapter uh, 13 here, verse 22, a word of exhortation, which is a way we often describe sermons. I think, though, the sermon concluded at the end of chapter 12. And what we have now in chapter 13 is, well, since I'm writing you anyway, and there's a bit of room left here on the scroll, let me go ahead and tell you some other things. Now, these other things, uh, given by inspiration, given in the vein of exhortations uh, from this inspired preacher, uh, these are not second important things, or we say, oh, well, it's just kind of an add-on. It's not that they're of second importance, but they weren't on the main topic. They weren't the main topic of discussion, but they are quite important. And so since I'm writing to you, let me go ahead and just remind you folks. And so I think that's what we have in chapter 13 until we come down toward the end where we close with the traditional uh, benediction, the closing prayer, and the the greetings, which in, compared to a lot of other books in Hebrews is quite abbreviated. So we have the final things, these final things, these these other exhortations. Uh, let's read those things, uh, uh, at least begin them. Uh, chapter 13, verse 1, and we'll read to verse 14, our plan of study tonight. Let love of the brethren continue. I told you this wasn't, you know, unimportant things, even though they're not the main topic. Yes, let love of brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. 
Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So we may confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go with out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but are seeking the city which is to come. So here are the final things, these final exhortations. Again, uh, they're added to the sermon. Now the sermon is complete. Still of things of great importance, but they weren't covered in the sermon that was given. So we have them all in short, short form. So first off, let brotherly love continue. The love of brethren. So in the first additional things, have love. Back in chapter 6, we were told that these people had had that and had shown it. It said there in this uh, reminder that God was not unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And so these folks had a history of this, and so that's why this is to continue. They don't need to resume it. They don't need to begin it. They're already doing it. They just need to keep doing it. And so there's a good bit of preaching that's always like that. When I tell the congregation, this is what you need to do, doesn't always imply they need to start it or they need to resume it uh, or in any way they need to do something they've not already been doing. It just might be a reminder of the good things that they're to continue in. Like Peter told the brethren, he said, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Well, that was a keep fervent, not get fervent, not be fervent, not find some fervency, but keep fervent. So here is the same thing. So don't let this love fade to oblivion. Don't let it uh, fade at all. Uh, don't let that happen. Keep on doing. And then we find, and I'll, if we understand what the word means at all, it's almost a tautology here in verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Quite literally in the Greek text, it says, don't forget uh, philozenos. Philozenos. The, the English uh, uh, translations here have to say hospitality to strangers because we use the word hospitality in a uh, broader way than the scriptures do. Not that I'm opposed to it necessarily. It's just how we do in English. But we need to understand what the Bible means by hospitality. Philozenos. It's the filio of 
uh, uh, filial love, the things that we have a warm affection for, the things that we prefer, the things that we like, right? So brotherly love, uh, Philadelphia, right? Phila, love, Delphi, brothers, Philadelphia. Well, then after Philadelphia, we have Philozenos. So as you love the brethren, also love the strangers. And we don't use the word Xenos too awful much. We do have the technical English term uh, xenophobia, which some might have heard. Xenophobia means a fear of strangers. We're not to have that. My dog has that. It's terrible. <laughs> as, my, as one of my dogs has gotten older, uh, she get, she's gotten a little more nervous. And toward the family, uh, she's an absolute cuddle bug and, and wants to be uh, uh, on our lap or under our feet or beside us in the bed. She wants to be uh, attached closer than if she was leashed uh, to us, to the family. But then to everybody outside the family, it, it's nothing but, uh, uh, you know, a, a snarls and teeth bearing. It's just, it's so annoying when somebody comes to the door, somebody comes to the house. And uh, she'll, if somebody is, if we're standing at the door, she'll never calm down. If they come in, in the house and they sit down on the furniture, she figures, oh, okay, it must be allowed. Uh, but uh, then they go to the uh, other room, they go to the kitchen to get a cup or they go to the bathroom and return and she forgot they're there. And so all of a sudden it's, you know, teeth bearing and snarling again. And so if we have several come over and we know it, we just got to put her up ahead of time. Well, she has exactly no philozenos. She's got the xenophobia. But Christians are to have the philozenos, the love of strangers. And it's verse two, as I said, it's just about a tautology when it says show hospitality to strangers. Well, honestly, there's nobody else to show hospitality to under this term because it's a love of strangers. The hospitality commanded repeatedly in the scriptures is not the hospitality of having the brethren come over uh, for cake and coffee. It's not having your neighbor over uh, for tea uh, and, and some cookies. It's not doing anything with people that you know or are already connected to. Uh, the, the hospitality enjoined of the scriptures repeatedly, as we're to be hospitable to one another without complaint in 1 Peter 4, we find that hospitality is a requirement of those who would be elders in 1 Timothy 3. Everywhere hospitality is enjoined in the New Testament, it's always towards strangers. And so is, is uh, charitable, as uh, welcoming, as loving, as concerned as you might be to people you already know and care about, and we're all for that kind of thing. I know the English word hospitality covers that, but it's really not the Bible word hospitality. So Bible hospitality is always strangers. Once they're not strangers, it's love of brethren or love of neighbors. But it, it's only hospitality when they're still strangers. And so we think about the legendary Eastern hospitality still found in the Middle East. Uh, people uh, you know, are required to be hospitable to an unbelievable degree compared to Western culture. And in the ancient time, they had that kind of hospitality. And especially for brethren and brethren traveling, um, there, there were no public houses that were safe uh, and, and commodious places to be. There was no uh, Holiday Inn or even a Motel 6 that was a, uh, a safe and regular place to be. Who would you stay with? Well, you'd find some connection somehow. And well, with the connection and family uh, of brethren and shared faith in Christ, he would be a regular and multiple opportunity to show love of strangers, especially when we share the faith. Well, we find here 
uh, verse 2, there's a bit that goes with this. It said, by this, some have entertained angels unaware. That goes back to the story of uh, Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. We won't go read that 20-verse story, but I think you know it, that Abraham uh, welcomed these. He received a blessing, a great blessing from them, as, as did Sarah, and the promise of God that they would have that promised child within a year. And so uh, we don't know who we might be entertaining. Uh, we might be helping any any number of of, uh, of people to whom God would bless us for having done so. We're to be a blessing to them. They might well be a blessing to us. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, uh, He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. And so uh, there's great security offered, great reward offered by Christ of giving basic hospitality, even, even a cup of cold water to a disciple because they're a disciple and you're a disciple and because you have met this new disciple friend, you both get to praise God together. And who knows how beneficial that might be for you. So then next, we've uh, had love for our brethren, love for the strangers. And now in verse 3, love for the prisoners. Remember them as though in prison with them. Well, the brethren who are prisoners, I realize there are prison ministries where criminals and uh, murderers and the like uh, are sometimes converted. And those guys need to be remembered. And those guys need to be encouraged in the faith. But most of the people these folks knew as brethren who were in prison were not there for criminal activity. They were there as persecuted people. They were there because of the faith we all share. And so especially here in mind is those who are in prison because of the faith. If they could be in prison because of the faith, you could be in prison because of the faith. So Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourself are also in the body. We're in the same body. We're in the same family. And, uh, you know, prisoners today, they don't get great treatment when they're in prison. I mean, that's part of the deal, right? If it was a two-star prison or a three-star prison, we wouldn't mind it so much. But it's a zero-star prison, right? It's a negative-star prison. I recall one time, taking the Cub Scouts. It's amazing the things I've got to see because I take scouts there. They'll let you in all kinds of doors. Well, one time we got in the door of the local jailhouse, not here, but another place. And uh, they were showing us uh, how they treated the prisoners. And they let the, you know, they let us lock the little fellows in the room for five, five minutes or so and uh, experience a little bit of it. They got to hear the door clang, but they talked about the meals. And in the state of Texas, where this was, there was a minimum daily nutritional requirement that prisoners had to be fed state law. Well, the city, to save money, had found out the cheapest way to, apt to meet that minimal nutritional requirement. It turns out that two of the Kroger brand uh, turkey dinners, generic turkey dinners, uh, they had a turkey dinner one and a Salisbury steak dinner one. If you gave them two of those a day, that would meet exactly the minimum state nutritional requirements for prisoners. So at 10 o'clock in the morning and at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, they got a Kroger brand frozen dinner nice and hot and fresh right out of the microwave. 
And they said that after about four or five days, the guys just couldn't stand them, just hated them. But they met the minimum nutritional requirement, and so that's what they were fed. Well, in the ancient prison, what do you think the minimum daily nutritional requirement was for prisoners? Yeah, you don't know, and they didn't either. Because a lot of times in the ancient prisons, even though you're in prison, you had to be fed by your own family. And if you didn't have family to do it, it might get really bad. You might have to pay people to do that. There were people who did that, but at exploitative rates, really taking advantage of the fact of these people's uh, dire situation. And so uh, remembering the prisoners might mean that your brother in Christ got to eat that day because you took a package of sandwiches down there or you took a pot of something. And so the, the things that prisoners would need really would outstretch our imagination, I think, even beyond prisoners today. And the, the things that prisoners need today uh, and, and should be out of kindness and Christian love and general de human decency, uh, it, it's extraordinary what they might need. Um, and those who do ministries in prison uh, can inform you all about it. And there are many worthy causes in that regard to support. But imagine a society without that and without uh, the state uh, uh, taking the responsibility of care for people. These people needed your help. These brethren needed your consideration. All right, next, after the prisoners. And I don't think we're, I don't think there's a logical connection as we go because we go right from prison to marriage, right? And several jokes in there I will not uh, pursue. Uh, you can make your own comments to yourself or with those with you uh, in the room. But now marriage. Marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And so like the traditional marriage sermon says, it's not good for man to be alone. This is a holy union. This is a holy estate, uh, which God has blessed man with. We are all to honor it, just like the traditional wedding ceremony and wedding vows do. We, we are to, to cherish uh, one another uh, in marriage, and we are to respect those uh, things in marriage. The, those who uh, break the marriage bond and the the sexual violation, not the only violation of the marriage vows, but the most obvious one and and uh, and uh, oftentimes the most immediately uh, uh, destructive, uh, that's not to be engaged in at all. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So God blesses marriage. When people do what he says, he blesses that. He joins them. That should not be put asunder by anyone. So God has blessed the union. But when there's a union outside of that, uh, when there's a union sought in addition to that, uh, these are not uh, blessed of God. We have uh, lengthy sections of Scripture dealing with this. Uh, we've had so much in the last two generations on this topic that uh, the passages about it are so familiar to us, we just recite the name of the passage, the chapter verse, we know what's there. We talk about Matthew 19, 9, or we talk about 1 Corinthians 7, or the, you know, not betraying the wife, your wife uh, by covenant, Malachi 2, and on we go. And so our society certainly is in breach of this exhortation to a large degree, and no one seems to be supporting it much at all uh, in society. And it's to our detriment. It's to our detriment. I, I saw an amazing thing. I'll just give one, one anecdote. In 1943, uh, 
height of, uh, right in the crushing uh, casualty time of World War II. The U.S. Congress debated expanding the draft. Uh, they already had everybody that would volunteer. They had drafted nearly everybody of the normal age, 18 to 22 and 23, that they, they could draft. And they needed more men still. And one of the things they thought about doing, and they debated this in the halls of Congress, was uh, drafting more and more married men. And there was a big debate about uh, the bad societal effects of so many husbands being away from their wives and fathers being away from their children. And so they ended up expanding the draft slightly to in married men who had no children, but they were still exempting the vast majority of fathers because they thought as bad as it is here in the dark days, middle of World War II, we don't want to have any more fathers away from children than are already gone. And a lot of men were gone from their families by reason of volunteering or uh, having fathered children uh, after they had entered the service. Well, we ended up winning that war, thankfully, without the draft of fathers. But the rate that fathers were gone from the homes in the height of World War II is less than currently the number of fathers outside of homes today. More children don't have fathers at home now than at the height of World War II. And it, 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 this was about 10 years ago or 15 years ago, we crossed that threshold. It's gotten quite a bit worse now. But the number of uh, children whose parents have never married, the number of children whose parents have divorced, of course, there's always a few uh, where the parents have uh, tragically passed, but that's never all that statistically significant, especially compared to those who voluntarily walk away from the homes where their children are. But in 43, in the height of the war, the Congress thought, this would, uh, this would be a, a solution worse than the cure. And what the, what the solution they were striving for ultimately was defeating Hitler and Nazi Germany and totalitarian Japan. And they said, that's, that's, that's too big a sacrifice for the families. Now we have voluntarily done that for nothing, not for any great cause, not for anything that we can in a few years point back and say, we've engaged in a great campaign and we tragically had a great cost to our families. Now we just we just have a great cost to our families for nothing, for nothing but selfishness on a societal level. Truly, truly sad and remarkable. Verse five. Next, make sure your character is free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he himself has said. And now, uh, quoting the Psalms, uh, Psalm one hundred and eighteen. Uh, excuse me, first quoting Deuteronomy 31, then Psalm 18. For he himself has said, I will never desert you nor forsake you. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I'll not be afraid. What can man do to me? This is the same connection that the Apostle Paul drives with uh, covetousness, greediness, and idolatry. Uh, greediness, covetousness, love of money. It's a betrayal of God. It's a showing of our lack of faith in God. We're to make prayers for our daily bread. And we're to have faith that God provides. One of the reasons people want an excess of money is so, well, like James 4, they can spend it on their pleasures, but also that they can save it up for security. That money to so many equals security. Money lets me do what I want. 
Money gives me freedom. Money op- opens up opportunity. And it does all that. And if God has blessed you with that and you have freedom and opportunity and security in that way, well, God bless you for it. And you better thank God for it as you do. But don't think that this is your absolute security. Don't think this is the, the monetary uh, advantage. Don't think that's the, uh, the real blessing of life. It is a blessing of life, but uh, it's a limited one. It's a one that uh, you think about the rich man that Jesus spoke of, who uh, thought he had uh, plenty for years to come, but that night his soul was required of him. We don't know when our time will be over. We don't know what those resources might uh, be needed for. Uh, we don't know uh, that, uh, you know, uh, setting them uh, for ourselves will guarantee anything. But when people decide that, yes, that's how I have security, it is a lack of trust in God. And so uh, some people think, well, money is a hedge. Money is a helper. It can be. But what's our real hedge? What's our real helper? What's our real security? Verse 6, the Lord is my helper. Quoting again, Psalm 118. So let's turn to the things of faith, not the things of this world. So in verse 7, we go to an exhortation about stability. Stability in our doctrine and our practice. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. Well, for these folks, that might have been apostles. And certainly it was some good prophets. Remember those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. So look look what happened with them. Well, yeah, some of those guys were martyred. But where are they now? So Paul would be able to tell the Corinthians, be imitators of me as I of Christ. Well, here the Hebrew writer says, remember those who taught you the word. What happened to them? How'd they live? And how'd it end up? The longer-term view we take of anything spiritually, the better off we'll be. If we think only of today or tomorrow and the gain of it, it might not seem to be uh, much of a gain for a high, uh, a high amount of self-denial, a high amount of loss. But if we think of eternity, if we think of the real outcome of things, then the spiritual things look better and better all the time. As God's promises have more time to come true in our life, as the things that God has promised do often do take time to mature. Uh, again, uh, the, the fruitfulness we're to have is not like uh, you know the fruitfulness of the field where uh, we plant it this year, we, we, we uh, reap it this year, we got our harvest this year. Our, our, our fruitfulness, so oftentimes the scripture is compared to trees. The righteous man, Psalm 1, or also from Jeremiah, compared to a tree planted by the water. It yields fruit season after season after season even in bad years. Because why? Well, it's, it's watered. It's planted by the water. So stability, looking at those who led you. And then we have the ultimate stability, stability in Christ. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Sometimes you'll hear about those in the faith, and even some who are uh, varying some degree from the faith. They'll talk about how simple it seemed to be in the past. Uh, they'll talk about the the time of devotion and simplicity uh, of, of the things that they had and the congregations they used to be associated with and the good people of the past. It's like, well, what's different now? Well, they think, well, now in modern times, in today's world, what's changed? Well, you didn't grow to be one of those stable people you used to depend on, maybe. But Christ didn't change. The gospel didn't change. Maybe the church changed because the people changed. 
But Christ didn't change. Christ is the same. And the purity and simplicity of devotion that people in the past had, well, you could have that. Just have a simple and pure devotion. How about that? No, Christ is there without changing. And his doctrine doesn't change. It doesn't get updated. Verse 9, don't be carried away by varied and strange teaching. So here comes the new teaching. Oh, that sounds good. Let's go with that. Well, hold on. How come we haven't heard that before? Well, maybe, maybe sometimes there was a failure of good explanation. There might have been a failure of exegesis. There might have been a failure of uh, understanding the Scripture. But if we're going to go with anything new or anything that's different, boy, it sure better be well supported by Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean we don't examine ourselves and we don't just stick with you know, the dead uh, functioning of tradition. We don't do that. But new doctrine, strange doctrine, boy, that's got to have a high, a high uh, burden to meet, a high barrier for entry, I would think. Because if we've been in the truth before and on the way, you know, that hymn we sing, I'm in the glory land way. Well, if that wasn't part of the glory land way before, why is it now? Or unless we decide we really weren't on the glory land way before. Now, that might happen. But again, that's, that's going to be a high bar. A high bar. It says, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by food, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. Uh, here, I think we're referring back again to the temptation, particular to these Hebrews, of going back under the law and the things of the law. Because as it says in verse 10, as we begin to follow Christ, it said that we have an altar from which those who serve in the tabernacle have no right to eat. So we've got eating there in verse 10 and eating in verse uh, 9 as well. The heart is strengthened by grace. It's the teaching of God. Grace comes by the gospel. In the old law, they had lots of things about uh, a diet, and they had lots of things about eating. You know, you'd get, make a sacrifice, and you'd take part of that home and eat it. The priest would eat it, uh, some of it as well as his portion. You had things that you kept and didn't keep. The full-blown version of that is, you know, kosher, keeping kosher or not. These things aren't the thing that helps. And so there's, some, I think, some teaching coming to these people that blended those old things that they knew back in. But he said these things, they didn't really uh, benefit people. They were occupied by them for those for uh, which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. There's some things in religion people get real occupied with, but not to benefit. Occupation with a thing doesn't mean it's beneficial. It may, it may uh, tie up your not mind in knots, may satisfy some of your curiosity, May fit what you think, but it's maybe not beneficial at all, is the warning here. Now, again, we are in Christ. Our stability is in following our uh, revealed Christ, our, the revealed Messiah of God. So again, these who serve in that tabernacle, that way they don't have any right to eat uh, of, of our things. So verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. So those who want to go with Judaism, there's things of Christ of which these people have no right to because they're things of faith. They're things of faith. And these people aren't following the faith. They're following the law or they're making a hybrid of the law and the faith. But if they want to be by the law, let them have the law and have the reward of the law, right? What's the reward of the law? Do this and live. That's the worst news in the world. 
Because what do people not do? They don't do, so they're not going to live. The law will condemn them. They're going to get the benefits of the law. They're going to get the Levitical system. They're going to get uh, the the Jewish system uh, of community and of synagogue and of those things. There was some benefit in that, but we know that was passing. When the Hebrew writer writes, those things are going to be existing for only a few more years. They are going to go away. So we have Christ who's permanent. We have Christ who's abiding. Verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. You can read that in Leviticus 16, 27, and 28, if you'd like the cross-reference. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Jesus goes out like the bodies of the uh, sacrificial animals did. Jesus is our sin offering, right? Isaiah, the iniquities of, of, of us all were laid upon him. He is the Lamb of God taking away the sins of the world. And so here's another way in which the figures of those things and the practice of those things is carried out and, and symbolized in the life of Christ. He went outside the city. He was taken outside. So he was within sight of the temple, but Jesus wasn't offered in the temple. Jesus, like where those sin offerings ended up, or like that scapegoat sent away, Jesus was sent outside. And so let's go where he is. Jesus got kicked out of town. You're going to get kicked out of town too. Or you might as well just volunteer and head on out now. Head on out following him. Head on out willingly. Head on out to where Jesus is. So let us go outside the camp bearing his reproach. As the Apostle Paul would tell the Philippians, uh, he said, Whatever things were gained to me, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order to gain Christ. So we're going to go out where he is. Now, if we leave the city, then we're not in the city no more, right? Kind of a true maxim. If you leave the city, you're not in the city no more. Well, where are we? Well, we're on a journey. We're pilgrims. We're no longer at home in this world. For here, we don't have a lasting city. Even if you stay in town, that's not lasting. Of course, Jerusalem was only going to last a few more years when this was written. But no matter what city, the, the, those cities will fade. But we are seeking the city which is to come, which harkens us right back to Hebrews 11 of the faithful Abraham and the other patriarchs. All these died in faith, Hebrews eleven thirteen, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they are strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they'd been thinking of the country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire the better country, the heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. And so we go where Christ is, outside the camp, outside of the things of this world. There's a beautiful stirring passage in uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress where Christian and faithful 
uh, they go to Vanity Fair and they find out that they just don't fit in. I'll read just a short bit from Bunyan. Now these pilgrims, as I said, must needs go through the fair. Well, they did so, but behold, even as they entered into the fair, for all the people of the fair were moved, and the town itself was in a hubbub about them for several reasons. For first the pilgrims were clothed in such kind of raiments as was diverse from the raiments of any that traded in the fair. The people, therefore, of the fair made great gazing upon them. Some said they were fools, some said they were lunatics, some said they were outlandish men. Well, second, as they wondered about their appearance, they likewise also at their speech, for few could understand what they said. They naturally spoke the language of Canaan, but they were they kept the fair, were men of this world, so that the one end of the fair to the other, they seemed barbarians each to the other. Third, but that which did little amuse the merchandisers, was the pilgrims set so light by all their wares. They cared not much to look at them, and if called upon to buy, they would put their fingers in their ears and cry, Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. And they would look upward, signifying that their trade and their traffic was in heaven. And so Bunyan speaks of the two travelers. They go to Vanity Fair, and they're dressed different. They speak different, and they're interested in different things. Of course, the people of Vanity Fair immediately uh, set upon them, arrest them, and after mocking and beating in an unfair trial, convict them and make one of them a martyr. But anyway, uh, yeah, uh, if you haven't in a while, uh, look at the section of Vanity Fair in Pilgrim's Progress. But as Bunyan was pointing out, we have a different life, though we share the same earth as these folks. We have a different life, a different goal. We have a different home. So that concludes our first section of the final things. Uh, we turn next in verse 15 uh, to the last of the final things, and Lord willing, the conclusion of our study in Hebrews. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.